So um, internet was down at my house yesterday, so I didn't get to send you all the tons of reading we were going to do. Um, I'm sure you're really regretting it. Because it all has exchange value. It's all stuff that you can say, this is what we read, when other people say, this is what we read. So that's exchange value, right? Okay. Um, so I brought my computer. Um, as we kind yeah, I did. Let's put it to use. We kind of figured out that uh, you guys weren't taking seriously the New England Accrediting Association requirement that all courses average 180 hours of outside of class work. Um, so you all fail, and I will see you next year. Good. Um, so you, you guys are way behind. We're way behind. That's okay. Um, what, but what I thought I'd do is tell you what to focus on for the midterm. And then um, we'll probably, we'll definitely figure out other things that we will not have time to do in the class. Because in a way, we're not really that far behind, especially for a course of mine. When I, why are you laughing? In, you should be behind in courses. That's a, that, not, not if you're a student, uh, but a class should be behind because it means that you are talking about stuff, which is good. So we're not, but we're not that far behind. Nevertheless, there's a whole lot of reading coming up, mainly literature, which is faster, but is still a lot. So I think that we're going to have to uh, figure out some stuff not to do, at least one more novel and um, possibly more. But let's just, so the exam, the midterm is March 11th. As I was um, saying yesterday, it's going to, in order to have a little bit more class time, it's really going to be a quiz, but it's going to have the importance of a test. So it's really the, the questions on the quiz are going to be ver versions of, did you do the reading? And unfortunately, you can't just say yes, but uh, they will be, can you show that you've done the reading? And you also can't say yes to that because you actually have to show it. But they're um, going to be short answers, possibly one sentence long, not really more than one sentence long, and it should be like 15 minutes or so. So that is what we'll be doing March 11th. What you should really know for then is the stuff that we discussed one way or another in class, which is to say that we talked a little bit about Aquinas, so you should really have read the Aquinas. We talked about the Merchant of Venice, so you should have read the Merchant of Venice. Obviously, we talked about um, um, the, the, the Aristotle at some length, so you should certainly know the Aristotle. We talked about The Gift by Marcel Mauss. So that would be a good thing to read. I think once you start reading it, you're going to like it. It's one of those, it's, it's full of interesting stuff. Are you nodding, Gabby, because that was your experience? Yeah, I started to read it. Okay, good. Good, nice, well done. That's known as exchange. Um, you say something to someone and they agree with you. It's like phone conversations in movies. Wait, you're not there yet? You were, your train was delayed? 
It was delayed three hours, so what's going on there is a conversation which is pure exchange. The person on the other side is saying something, and then the person that they're talking to is simply repeating what they say with a question mark at the end. So we can say the question mark is the punctuation mark for exchange. I think we can. I think that's actually, like, such a good insight. Worth a tweet. Anyhow, the <laughs> pound, yes, because we talked about pound. Spencer, yes, because we talked about Spencer, so book two, Canto Seven of the Fairy Queen. The um, Pardoner's Tale, yes, because we talked about the Pardoner's Tale. Kawabata, obviously, because we talked about it. The Exeter Riddles, um, yes. The Geneva Bible uh, quotations, yes, um, about interest. And as I say, yes to the gift, no to time in of Athens. Uh, yes to the Koran, to the um, to the handout. So basically, if you got it in a handout, yes. We'll talk a little bit about money, the blood of a commonwealth today. So you should read those pages by Hobbes. They're not very long, um, and you should definitely read the um, Zimmel and the Fable of the Bees. And then for tomorrow. And I think for Monday, we'll be looking at Kant's Analytic of the Beautiful, which I will send out tonight. Um, hi. Are you feeling better? Yep. Um, and about five, so that's about six or seven pages long. Um, we'll talk about it tomorrow, Adam Smith's theory of the moral sentiments, which is also about six or seven pages long. And look at Macbeth Act 3, Scene 2, because Adam Smith went to see Macbeth and got hit one of his, probably his single most famous phrase. Does anyone have a phrase they associate with Adam Smith? Yeah. The invisible hand. The invisible hand, yes. So what is the invisible hand, Jimmy? Um, basically, it's like the invisible hand in the market helps things stay in equilibrium. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the idea of the invisible hand, which is, uh, which is an arresting phrase from Adam Smith, is that markets are self-regulating. That what happens is that if you have individuals who are, who, are, who are in a market and who are buying and selling and exchanging, what happens is that the people look, it's like ecology Economy is like ecology. People look for openings. They look for niches. They look for places where they can do things to advantage. And the result is that ultimately there's an equilibrium. And that equilibrium is, is something which is, it's not that there's government regulation which is causing the equilibrium, although Adam Smith actually thought government regulation was a good thing. Lots of people who think they're Adam Smithians are not. But that, nevertheless, that markets do find an equilibrium and that that equilibrium is actually one in which is productive, in which um, advances are made. And the idea in doesn't entirely come from Mandeville, but a whole lot of it comes from Mandeville. Adam Smith had a very um, complex and uh, uh, oppositional relationship to Mandeville, and that's something that we'll talk about today and tomorrow. But the idea of, of 
a self-regulating system, which is an idea that's been central to lots and lots of thinking since the beginning of the 18th century, since Mandeville. The idea of a self-regulating system, that's something that you get in neural nets. That's what the immune system is. That's what evolution is. All of these are developments out of the out of economic ideas that pretty much start with Mandeville and to some extent with Locke, but I would say more Mandeville than Locke. Would you agree, Oner? Um, Oner is a real expert on Locke. Um, so that idea that, that people acting as individuals for themselves produce a system which is in a kind of stable equilibrium. And it's not actually equilibrium because the system is always expanding and advancing, but which, is at, but which nevertheless does things efficiently and advances in the most efficient way possible. That idea is in Adam Smith associated with the phrase the invisible hand. Now the crucial thing to see is, or to think about is, it's not the crucial thing, a thing to think about in a class on literature and economics is where Adam Smith got the term, and he got it from Macbeth, he went to see Macbeth, and then um, was quite struck by the use of the phrase in Macbeth. So we will be looking at Macbeth's use of that phrase. And, um, and then also Hume's little essay of money. So after that, we won't do, I don't think we'll do uh, Blake's Four Zoas, that's, that's hard and um, not that essential. You should be reading, because you don't have that much more time to read it, Defoe's Roxana. Um, it's possible that we'll only do part one, um, but that's something that I'll think about, I guess, for tomorrow. Um, but we'll, um, and you should definitely read uh, Marx's Capital, um, chapters one through three, and the um, 30 pages from uh, Graeber's Debt, the f first 5,000 years. That Those go pretty fast. Marx actually goes pretty fast, too, surprisingly enough. So I think that's what will be on the midterm. If we, it, It's possible that it won't all be and that we'll still be behind, or that what I'll do is, is delay Roxanne a little bit, and maybe we'll skip The Noble Hustle, um, although I'd like to do it, or maybe we'll skip Zola's Money, although that's a great novel. But we'll figure it out. Do you guys have druthers? Is there stuff that you would like to skip, not because it's long, but because it's not interesting to you, or stuff that you really were hoping to do? OK. All right. So let's talk a little bit more about the what we were, I, I want us to get to Mandeville, and I hope you all brought it. But just to talk a little bit more about um, Marcel Mauss and then Georges Bataille, who wrote The Notion of Expenditure, which is also will be on the midterm. So The Notion of Expenditure, as I mentioned before, is Bataille kind of celebrating as fantastically wonderful what Mauss has written about, and in particular celebrating the idea of destruction of wealth. So let me just ask you, if you put, if we're thinking, as to some extent we have been, that 
all values, that is everything that human beings care about, you could say everything that human beings value. Let's just take value in a, in a very, very um, <coughs> basic sense, everything that human beings care about, that all values are either use or exchange value, which means that use just means that um, you enjoy it in whatever way that you enjoy it. Uh, if you meet someone and they become your friend, they have a use value. And that's not saying that you're using them. So don't take use value to mean something um, that, that diminishes or objectifies something as though it were a commodity that you could use or buy and sell. All it means is that it's something that enhances your life when you interact with that thing rather than because that thing can be traded for something else. So in a way, what you could say, and Marx will say, is that commodification, turning something into a commodity for Marx, ultimately means turning it into something that has exchange value. That's a little bit of a strange notion of what the word commodity means. Commodity means that it accommodates you, that it's good for you, that it gives you, that it's useful to you. But when a commodity is something that is produced for a market, then it's produced for exchange rather than for use. And then the thing that has pure exchange value for Marx is going to be the one particular commodity, which is gold. And gold has, has the purest sense of exchange value because although it is useful in real life, and for Marx it has to be useful, it has to have some use or no one would care about it, 99.9% .9 of the care that people have in gold is for its exchange value, is in order to exchange it. And that's what the story of Midas, which will be on the midterm, that's what the story of Midas is about that Midas confused use value with exchange value. He thought it would be great to own a ton of gold, and it's not great to own a ton of gold. It's only great if you can do something, if you can trade that gold away. So when we talk about commodities markets, what we mean by that are, are not... You know, when you read the newspapers and you hear what things, what are what is happening to things on commodities markets, the reason those things are happening is because of traders who are trying to make money, and so the commodities, the way we now use them, the way we now use the term commodity, tends to mean something with exchange value. It has exchange value because it has use value, but it tends to mean something with exchange value. But the way we should use use value is anything that enhances life in a way that the story of Midas tells you that gold does not enhance life. Gold may allow you to purchase something that will enhance life. And so people go for the gold. That's a good phrase. I should copyright it. People go for the gold because they are looking for something that will get them something that will enhance life but the gold itself doesn't. And that's why Aquinas, for example, talks about there being no difference between someone with no money in their pocket and someone with a lot of money in their pocket because the money in the pocket does nothing. It's being able to purchase something with it 
that does something for you. If do you guys know the show Gilligan's Island? I'm told no one knows Gilligan's Island anymore. Okay. Um, yeah, it's and and you don't know the Beverly Hillbillies, right? We established that. Um, how very, very, very sad. Do you know Perry Mason? Yeah, we talked about Perry Mason. I saw another Perry Mason episode recently where not one bill, but $7,000 bills were ripped in half. And Paul Drake, the private investigator, said that's some expensive, that's, he sees half the bills lying on someone's um, bureau and says, that's some, it's actually a dressing table in a dressing room. And he says to the woman who has the seven half thousand dollar bills, that's some expensive confetti you got there. So that would be really a, a whole lot is packed into that. As use value, it's confetti. As exchange value, it is potential exchange value, but right now it has no exchange value at all. Anyhow, Gilligan's Island, which I know you were burning to know about, is uh, seven uh, quirky people who are cast away on an island, and it's an uncharted island, and they're stuck there. They went out for a, for a three-hour tour from a marina in Southern California, but they get blown away by a storm, and now they're on this desert island, and they don't know how to get away. And so it's kind of the Swiss Family Robinson and kind of Robinson Crusoe, except these are all um, types. So there is Gilligan, there's, there's a skipper who has, who's been running the boat, and there's Gilligan, who, played by Bob Denver, who is his little buddy. If you've ever heard the phrase little buddy, it's because the skipper always calls Gilligan little buddy. And Gilligan is the one who finds the island. That's why it's called Gilligan's Island. And Gilligan is the comic figure. And then there is a millionaire, played by Thurston, I'm sorry, played by... Um, um, Jim Backus, do people know who he is? You ever see the Mr. Magoo Christmas Carol? You ever see Mr. Magoo? Do you know what Mr. Magoo is? You're kind of like Donald Trump. He claimed not to know who Mr. Magoo was either after calling um, Jeff Sessions Mr. Magoo. Uh, who's Mr. Magoo, Jimmy? Uh, he's this bald guy they can't see. Yes. Oh, That's Mr. Magoo. The, the, like driving, yeah. like not drive. Well, he drives, and he's driver. completely lucky because every time yeah, he doesn't. <coughs> Sorry. Does he cross over with Pink Panther sometimes? Or am I? I don't think so, but it's possible that there's a Mr. Magoo meets the Pink Panther kind of special. But he is. I actually know someone who knew the uh, the person Mr. Magoo was based on, who was a Harvard professor, um, who taught Old English. And apparently was uh, was was kind of charmingly inept as Mr. Magoo is. So Mr. Magoo is basically someone who can't see but won't won't put on his glasses, and he is always barely avoiding disaster through pure luck, like he's about to walk off a building, but luckily there's a crane bringing up a girder, and he just walks across the girder thinking he's walking down a hallway because he can't see into a window into another building, and everything's fine for him, but everyone watching him is horrified. And then at the end of every show, he puts his glasses on, and suddenly he can't believe what's going on. So he was voiced by Jim Backus, now you know. And um, there is a famous, I think you can still, you can certainly see it on YouTube, famous version of the Christmas Carol where Mr. Magoo plays Scrooge. And that is, it's a Christmas Carol, but everyone watch it because not, oh, God, Charles Dickens. Do you know this? Queer name, right? You know what that's from? The novel I chose to address 
You guys don't even watch Family Guy? What? Family Guy? Do you watch it? Family Guy, do you even watch it? <laughs> None of you watch Family Guy? Oh, what you're missing. I mean, not that, I, I mean, if it's South Park versus Family Guy, I'd definitely go for South Park, but <coughs> still. I think you expect us to have, like, we have popular time culture. Time. <laughs> like, we well, you're obviously not play. using it for reading. <laughs> Ooh, Touché. sick burn there. Touche. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Oh, isn't that like that thing? The, the, the touche, yeah. yeah. You know what it means in fencing? Touched. It means I acknowledge that I've been touched. Yeah. So it's, it is the, the um, proper thing to do if the referee doesn't see that you've been touched, you acknowledge it. No one does it anymore, but, but people should. So, all right, <laughs> this is unhelpful. Jim Backus plays the millionaire, Thurston Howell III, and his wife is played by Ava Gabor, I think, and then there's a professor, and there's a movie star, and there's a red-blooded, um, perfectly normal um, Peggy Sue, whose name is Mary Jane. Everyone knows what Peggy Sue means in like fan fiction, TV tropes. Okay, Peggy Sue means oh Mary Sue. I'm sorry, you're so right. I was thinking of Peggy Sue got married. Thank you. Um, her name is Mary Jane. And so they're all on this island. And the point is that that Thurston Howell, the millionaire played by Bill, by Jim Backus imagines that the fact that he's a millionaire should give him most influence on this island. And he's always smoking a cigarette with his cigarette holder, and he's got his, his um, uh, cravat tucked into his shirt, and he's always um, speaking contemptuously <coughs> of everyone else on the island. But his money does him no good there, and that's what he keeps finding. So if you have money, but you are not in a place where you can spend it, the money is worthless. This is a long way of saying that obvious thing. All right. The question then about gift giving. So just to quickly summarize what Mose is arguing, or what Mose is observing, is that most histories, at least through the beginning of the 20th century, including and beginning with to not beginning with Adam Smith, but with Adam Smith as a large um, figure in this history. Think that things start with barter, that people come in and they say, I will give you three fish hooks if you give me eight buttons. And then there's an exchange, and they just trade. And then eventually they realize that it would be good to have a medium of exchange, and they pick one which is useful, and that tends to be gold for reasons that we've talked about. It doesn't have to be gold, but tends to be gold for reasons that we've talked about. And then once gold becomes established as a universal medium of exchange, then people start lending out at interest. That is, someone needs to borrow gold in order to get some, something else, and then <coughs> they lend out at interest, and there's something, as we talked about, that really horrifies a lot of people about lending out at interest. So most is interested in the fact that, in, that it's a human universal, that gift-giving is a human universal, that in all societies gift-giving takes place, and that the way you can tell that it's gift-giving is that 
it's not something that simply takes the form of exchange. I really want a comb. You really want a watch chain. So I will give you a watch chain if you give me a comb. What the gift of the, of the Magi is just focuses on is the idea that something other than pure overt exchange occurs in gift giving. It partly takes the form of the person getting the gift doesn't get to decide what they get. It's the giver's choice, not the receiver's demand. So if you think of economies as occurring through supply and demand, gift giving kind of messes that up because it's maybe supply. I may have a whole lot of bottles of wine and I will give you one, but it's not demand. It's not that you come to me as a friend because you're interested in wine. Yeah. But I, wouldn't you say that it's not the case either that nothing is exchanged in the process? Well, something is exchanged. So tell me what you're thinking. Um, if if you give someone a gift and, you know, you, I don't think you can, like, be absolutely sure that they won't, you know, give you something back, right. whether it's, you know, physical or not. Yeah. Know. Yeah. So so the idea, this is what we were talking about a bit on Monday, that for that, that a really good model for gift exchange, the way Moses is thinking about it, is birthday gifts. And the reason for that is that there's a built, there's a built-in delay with birthday gifts. That you give someone a gift for their birthday, and then yes, you have a right to expect that they'll give you a gift back for your birthday. If they don't give you a gift back for your birthday, what you will feel <coughs> is not that this is unfair, but that they don't like you or that they don't love you. In other words, gift-giving is a sign of affection or it's a sign of, of a special, special relationship. That's the idea of a gift, that if you give someone a gift, you are asserting a kind of special relationship with them. And this is, this is so I should just say, this is what's overt. This is what in Freudian psychoanalysis is called the manifest content. Do people know the difference between manifest and latent content? Are these phrases familiar to you? So Freud says it in The Interpretation of Dreams, which, oh, yeah, this, you need to read all this for the exam, too. Freud says, do you know what Freud's theory of dreaming is? What Freud says dreams do? Anyone know? Well, they do, but that is for... In Freud. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they do but only if they are interpreted. So they come from your unconscious, and you can interpret what the, what's really on someone's mind the way you can with a Rorschach blotch by seeing what it is that, that is on their mind even though it's distorted into dreams. So very quickly, the two Freud's main idea is that um, single... Again, tweet-worthy takeaway in the interpretation of dreams is dreams are wish fulfillments. Dreams fulfill wishes. Every dream you have is the fulfillment of a wish. So this immediately gives rise to the question, what about nightmares? And 
that is where Freud gets interesting, because what he's essentially saying then is that in most cases, dreams are the fulfillment of a wish that your conscious mind doesn't want to acknowledge. And therefore, the wish fulfillment of a dream is <coughs> one which distorts what the wish is so that you don't recognize the wish that's behind it. And there are obvious cases of this where you can tell that you're having thoughts that you don't want to be having. And one way to tell yourself that these aren't really your thoughts is to be horrified by yourself. And we've all had that experience of being horrified by ourselves. We've wished a parent dead when the parent is being nice, really nice to us. And we look at them and say something like, well, you're being nice now, but you're still horrible and I wish you were dead. And then we feel guilty. And we try to put that thought aside. And what Freud says is this is the sort of thing that happens in dreams all the time, is that wishes that we can't acknowledge appear in dreams, but they appear either affectively different, so something we want comes to us as something horrible, or they appear... Um, with the elements in the dreams change. So this is the this is the place where Freudian symbolism comes from. <clears throat> that if you are dreaming about about phallic symbols, you're not thinking, "Oh, look, a phallic symbol in my dream." What you're thinking is, "I'm not interested in sex. I'm interested in healthy eating, like a cucumber." And that the reason you're having a dream about a cucumber is not because your wish fulfillment is really cucumbers, they're so good. What's happened is there is a distortion and the wish can be fulfilled unconsciously. You have an unconscious fantasy that appears to your conscious or remembering mind as something different or innocuous. So that's, that is... Um, not, the, not really the most important thing Freud says, but it's the basic thing that he's saying in the interpretation of dreams. That if you look at any dream and analyze it enough, you will see that it's based on a wish. And the wish may not be obvious. So there's what Freud calls a latent content. That's the true meaning of the dream. And then the manifest content, which is how the dream is experienced by the dreamer. And this is something that psychologists who think they hate Freud and have no interest in Freud and think Freud was ridiculous, and as one psychologist actually famously once said, and this is true, you have to know this is a true story because it's too stupid to be made up. One psychologist famously once said of Freud, the problem with his so-called theories is that they're not testicle. <laughs> so that's called a Freudian slip. So... The um, all psychologists, or almost all psychologists, agree that we are mistaken about our own motives, about our own desires, about our own judgments. And in particular, that we <coughs> believe that we do things for individual reasons that we actually do because we're built that way. And so the manifest content of gift giving is that you like someone and you give them a gift. And the manifest content is I'm showing them how much I like them by giving them a gift. And that's what we all do. And we do it all the time. And we feel, often we feel warm 
about ourselves as well as about them. It's like a combination of warmth. And it's, it's, it's a special relationship. It's pleasurable. It's likable. And the fact, and this is what Moses is interested in, the fact that they accept the gift makes us feel good. So that it's as though they're acknowledging the generosity, the love, the affection, the friendship that we put into giving them a gift by the fact that they are happy about it and that they receive it. And this is where thank you notes come from. The reason you write a thank you note is to show, and the reason it became instituted is because thanking someone for a gift is a way of making the circuit of affection <coughs> two ways. So that is not exchange, but it is the shadow of exchange. There is the person who gives the gift, and there's the gratitude of the receiver. And the gratitude of the receiver is an acknowledgment that the receiver gets that the person who gave the gift is doing it out of affection, is doing it out of friendship, is doing it out of some good feeling towards the receiver of the gift. And that moment of acknowledgement is what the giver is looking mm -hmm. for. However, if you give someone a birthday gift, if they're a peer, so things are complicated when when you don't have peer-to-peer -peer gift giving, but not complicated that much. But if someone is a peer and you give them a birthday gift and they acknowledge it and thank you, and then an average of six months later, it's your birthday. So this is what I was talking about, Sam. That an average of six months later, it's your birthday. If they don't give you a gift back or don't acknowledge your birthday even though they know it, don't in one way or another symbolize, make it symbolic that it's your birthday, you'll feel hurt. So why do you feel hurt when you gave them a gift? You weren't supposed to want a gift back. You gave them the gift because it was a gift. How is it a gift if you're going to feel hurt if they don't give you a gift back? So, yeah, Andrea. It's because you're saying, like, I... Right. Yeah, exactly. So that's the manifest content. Now, what I think Sam was saying is that the latent content is that gifts are exchanges. That I give you a gift and you give me a gift back, and ultimately it's an exchange. And you can see this when it comes to like um, uh, presidents who demand gifts and also give gifts to people who can give them gifts back to take an example at random. Um, and here, the so what a cynical person would say is, yeah, it looks all warm and lovely and so on, but it's the same nuclear family bullshit as ever, which is that it's an economic relationship which is gussied up as a human relationship, and it really <coughs> isn't. And the idea then would be that people are actually exchanging gifts because they want things from, from other people that 
I give you a bottle of wine because I know that you produce truffles. And here's my lovely gift for you, a bottle of wine. And then my birthday happens to be in truffle season, and I'm really looking forward to the truffles you're going to give me. And there's something cynical about that. I didn't give you the wine because I loved you. I gave you the wine because I wanted your truffles. And that would be what you're describing and what, to some extent, most is suggesting happens in gift exchange in general in cultures all over the world. Yeah? You know, one big difference would be that sometimes that when, I, when we exchange gifts, what I'm buying is, 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 is a bond. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and you know, then it will not be broken up. You can think of it when I'm giving you money or expecting money. I'm, I'm, I'm actually buying a non-relationship. Because I'm actually, part of what I'm buying is not, not having to be nice to you. Yeah. Like, you know, sort of, it's just, and that's nice too, like, you know, because you don't have to know everyone and, and, and stuff. But so there is that huge balance, nevertheless, <clears throat> that although it's, it's an exchange, it's an exchange that's meant to perpetuate an ob- ob- obligation yeah. as opposed to one that's supposed to break obligation. Right. And so the, <coughs> the point about obligation is that that is, as Falstaff says, um, obligation is one of the ways that love one of the forms of love. That is, that if I feel obliged to you, that's gratitude. And uh, gratitude is a sense of, I owe you something. I mean, that's what we say. I owe it to you. I owe you something. You helped me when I was um, in desperate straits, and I really owe you something. Um, And I may never be able to repay it. So the language of exchange and the language of debt is a language that we use when we talk about (coughs) gifts. And as is the language of bond, which is a legal term, which is also a moral term, or maybe it's a moral term which is turned into a legal term. Hume has a famous essay called Of Original Contract, where he denies that there can be such a thing as a social contract. Everyone knows the term social contract, right? And do you have a sense of what it means? What's the social contract? It's um, a contract between the government and, like, populace. So, like, the government protects the people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but where did that contract come from? Uh, I think it was Locke, wasn't it? <laughs> 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 and you're naturally born free, but you give up that freedom yeah. for safety by, like, entering into social contracts. Right. So, ultimately, it comes from Hobbes. And the idea is that, that individuals associate with each other and give up some of their rights um, in order to get some benefits, which is the definition of a contract. A contract means that you are giving up some rights um, in consideration of benefits that you get from giving up those rights. Does everyone know that, that that's the definition of a contract? Is you agree that someone can live in your house if you if you sign a contract that they're and and for that they get to live in your house and you can't kick them out, but the benefit that you get from that is you get money because they're renting a room in your house. So contracts always mean that you're contracting yourself, you're you're binding yourself to do certain things as long as the other party or parties also do certain things. And one definition of freedom, political freedom, is freedom of contract, that people are allowed to make whatever contracts they want. 
um, sometimes within limits, sometimes not. If you're a pure libertarian, then there's no limit to the contracts that you can make, which might seem counterintuitive, but is in fact definitional. You can, con you can contract for anything with anyone, and the only function of governments is to enforce contracts, is to make sure that if you signed an agreement to do something, the government can make you do it if asked to by the other party to the agreement. So the idea then is that contracts are things that free entities enter into by agreeing to do certain things in view of benefits. And what Hume said is, I never signed a contract like that. I never agreed that I would live in this society. Here I am, 18 or 21, and people are saying that I belong to a social contract, and I never signed that contract. There is no such thing. So this is an essay of Hume's called Of Original Contract, and he's just skeptical that you can, that you can talk in those Hobbesian and Lockean terms because it's, you can, you can um, bind yourself to do certain things, but how do you bind people who are not yet born to do those things? That's Hume's skeptical view of of this so-called original contract that you find in Hobbes. So in gift giving, the idea is the contract is implicit, that what you do is you give someone a gift and it's not a contract. They don't owe you anything legally, but they do owe you something morally. So if they're decent human beings, if they're the kind of person you would give a gift to, then they would feel like they should give a gift back to you. But one thing, and this is part of what Honor was talking about, is that the contract takes this form, or at least the social nature of it, the social bond takes this form, which is as the great 18th century aphorist La Rochefoucauld put it, great aphorism, overmuch eagerness to repay a debt is a sign of ingratitude. So if you try to pay someone back too quickly, you're showing ingratitude. So why is that a sign of ingratitude? Someone gives you a gift, and the very next day you go and buy them something of equal value, and you give it to them. And that's a thing. You're rushing to do it. Why is that ingratitude? Yeah. Um, I think it perhaps it might have something to do about, like, someone's offering. You're supposed to, like, sign your end of the contract, but... You know, instead, you you like immediately push it away. Yeah, so you're pushing the contract away, the social contract away. Um, but why is that ingratitude? I mean, you're quits with them. You're even, Andrea. Yes, it's kind of the idea that like it, it's a thought that counts. So like, yes. you don't take the time to actually like, pick out a gift for them and like something they really like. You just like pick up the next thing that you see that's going to say no. Yeah, but what if it's what if it's thoughtful? I mean, I agree with you that it's the thought that counts, but it's also the time, it's the delay that counts. Um, Prue, then Jimmy, and then Ian. You're kind of like signifying by doing it too quickly that you're uncomfortable with being in debt to them in yeah. that way. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. So, I don't know. Yeah. It's like you're uncomfortable owing them something. Right. That's not. Yeah, yeah. Jimmy, is that... Yeah, that's pretty much what I was going to say. Like you're, cleaning, like, you're cleaning the slate too quickly, and you're not giving them a chance to, like, maybe ask for a favor or something like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's also a tacit admission that there is 
a debt mm-hmm. owed, which we're sort of uncomfortable admitting that gift giving is an implied contract. Mm-hmm. So to view it as paying them back is an admission that there is something to be paid back at all. Yeah, that it was just exchange. Yeah. That that it, it's cynical. It's just exchange, and I don't want to be in this exchange relationship with you, or I just want the exchange relationship to have terminated, which is what Sam was saying also. That is that when you owe someone something to someone, you're in a relationship with them. That's what Shylock wants from Antonio. What he says is, look, yeah, you pay back the 3,000 ducats, and if not, you owe me a pound of flesh, which um, just means that you owe me something real. You owe me something that is you and not just money. And the pound of flesh, for me, has no use value. That's what Shylock almost explicitly says. Um, this pound of flesh, and what other people say to him. What, what, what Solari and Selenio um, say to him is, um, Shylock says, Shylock here is just to remind you of the plot, um, that Leia has... Um, has traded the, tur- the turquoise ring for wilderness of monkeys, and um, sorry, that Jessica has done that, and he hears it when first Solaria and Selenio are taunting him because they're vicious, and what they say is Antonio won't be able to pay you back, ha ha ha, and that's a real mistake for them to laugh at Shylock over the fact that he's lent out money but now Antonio is going to be bankrupt. And then they rub it in. They rub salt in the wounds by, by going on to say, plus Jessica and Lorenzo took all this stuff. So you are a three-time loser, or at least a two-time loser. He'll be a three-time loser at the end of Act 4. You're a two-time loser. Ha, ha, ha. And then Shylock says, yeah, I made a bad match, and Antonio helped let him look to his bond. And they say, wait, what, can, what good can the pound of flesh do you? And Shylock says, guess what? It has use value. I can feed fish with it. And then he comes up with even bet, better use value. If it will diet nothing else, it will diet my revenge. So the use value is... It will enhance my pleasure by giving me revenge. That's not why he wanted the pound of flesh to begin with, but that's why he demands it when he's able to get it. The reason he wanted it to begin with is that it's, a, it's the thought that Antonio owes him something, not the thought that Antonio will have to pay it back. He'll just have to pay back 3,000 ducats without interest, but the thought that he owes him something. So the first thing then about gifts is it is the thought that counts, which is I owe you something, and if I pay you back too quickly, then I'm not accepting it as a gift. But if I accept it as a gift, it means we're tight in a certain way. And that tightness means that it's a seesaw. And when your birthday comes around, I'll give you a gift. And then you'll owe me something. And this will go back and forth and we will, we will share this seesaw, which is our lives of give and take. And that's a good thing. So that's the manifest content of gift giving. What most says the latent content is, is that it's interest. 
that people always try to give back a gift which is worth more than the gift they got. You don't want to give back a gift that's worth less. You want to give back a gift that's worth more if you can afford it. And so gift giving does two things. It imposes an obligation on the person to whom you give the gift to wait and then give you a gift back of higher value. That's the second thing. So most says that barter is actually a degenerate form of gift giving. That giving people stuff, waiting for a higher value return, which later be call, becomes called usury, is actually the natural state of human relations. Is you give, give someone something, and they give you something more valuable later, and then you give them something of still more value later than that. And that also means that whoever has given a gift is in a state of being obliged, of, of having an obligation owed them. So gift giving is a sign of dominance. And that's the most cynical way of understanding what gift giving is. But it's there. So what's the potlatch? It's saying, I could dominate you, but I'm so nice that I won't. And there you get a really strange paradox, which is the dominance is not I am dominating you, you owe me this, but you owe me for the fact that I'm not making you owe me anything. You owe me for that, that I'm not requiring you to owe me anything. And that, for Mouse, is what the potlatch is. Okay, I'll send you some stuff tomorrow, and tomorrow we will look at Mandeville and at Adam Smith and try to read the Kant for tomorrow as well. I'll get it to you um, by 2 this afternoon. So I guess bribery would be a bit different than... Well, no, bribery would be the actual truth of gift-giving, the, the actual latent content, according, if you take it very cynically. Yeah, because you, like, actually expect something from Yeah, exactly. And whereas in human life you're not supposed to expect it, even though you do, it's supposed to be an emotional expectation and not a, um, and you and it's supposed to be a symbolic expectation. That is, you expect it not because you want the um, value of the gift, but because it means that this person giving you the gift is acknowledging their relationship with you, their friendship, their love, their their companionship, whatever it is. My, my one personal experience of bribery actually does make it look like a lot like gift giving. When I was very young, my uncle was driving this car and it was driving too fast and I was in it. And he was a very silly man back then. So the police stops us in because I'm a big, you know, he called him, although it's more or less the same age, but he called him my nephew. And like my uncle called the police on like he was just establishing. And then the man, like, so just, and he bribed him. And I couldn't believe, like, what's going on here? And the man was extremely respectful. The man was being bribed. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, so there was that kind of, oh, that was terrible. But wow. But it was, like, a kind of, yeah. it made an impact. And now he denies that this ever happened. But I <laughs> of course he does. Just, <laughs> How old were you? I think I was about maybe five or something. Like wow. Just, and he was really, I was, I was the only person. So she, he, he did something really bad. Wow. Uh-huh. Yes, yes, yes. But I can't believe that you would call someone who the same age, like, establishing dominance. Yeah. And offering money. Yeah, yeah. And the man took it, and he was... 
ap apologetic, and, and he was kind of embarrassed that he realized that he wanted the money. Yeah, and yeah. Then it was just terrible, but you know, but in a sense, it's the same sort of. Yeah. <laughs> see you tomorrow. All right. See you tomorrow.